It's Monday, December 19th, 2022 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The New York Times had a very well-reported story on its front page today. Election Victor has big holes in his resume. They're talking about George Santos. He's the congressman-elect from Long Island and Queens, right there in the middle of the New York Times coverage area. And this guy bragged about an uplifting story and a life of success, but I'll read the important parts. Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, the marquee Wall Street firms on Mr. Santos's campaign biography, told the Times they had no records of his ever working there. Officials at Baruch College, which Mr. Santos said he graduated from in 2010, could find no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating that year. There was also little evidence that his animal rescue group, Friends of Pets United, was, as Mr. Santos claimed, a tax-exempt organization. There were apparently a group of furries who engaged in underground human cockfighting. No, that's untrue, but no less a faux-poo-faux-pas as documented by the New York Times. Great job, except for one thing. Now you tell us? There was a time when voters could have done something with the information that the guy on the ballot looks like he was presiding over a house of lies, and that time was before the ballots were due before election day. Now you tell us? I guess I'm glad the New York Times is putting this out there so that maybe in two years, the voters can do something about it. Or, you know, George Santos can take some correspondence courses at Baruch and correct some of that resume based on sand. On the show today, I shall spiel about the efforts at Airbnb and other organizations to fight discrimination efforts that have been described widely as quite inadequate, not going far enough. But for Sam Quinones is a journalist, storyteller, and former LA Times reporter, and he's the author of The Least of Us, True Tales of American Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. He joins us to talk about the drug epidemic shift from meth to fentanyl and from one form of meth to another. Talks about how Mexican gangs are vital in the spread and popularity of these drugs in the United States. China is implicated too. Sam Quinones up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you look up CDC data, which reflects mortality and morticians' deaths, you will find 100,000 Americans died of unintentional poisoning. What does that mean? Do you not understand what they're trying to say? Well, unintentional poisoning is the category that encapsulates drug overdoses. That's more than double the number who die in car accidents, more than four times the number who die in gun homicides. And author and LA Times veteran Sam Quinones has been chronicling America's addiction and savaging at the hands of drugs. His 2015 book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, won a National Book Critics Circle Award. His new book with a new afterword is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam, welcome to The Gist. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Let's take both of these drugs in order and we'll get to the fentanyl in a second. But the meth is a little different or a lot different actually from the meth that maybe we were thinking of or that the uh, fictional characters in Breaking Bad were cooking up. What's the new P2P meth? It's an old way of making methamphetamine that is now new to uh, Mexican traffickers in the last 10 years or so. Uh, They were forced to move to making P2P meth um, because uh, the Mexican government shut down the other precursor that they were using, which is ephedrine, which is in Sudafed pills and all that. That's kind of classically how you used to make it. Um, using a new precursor, there is this way of making methamphetamine. It's uh, using this precursor P2P, phenyl to propanone, much more messy, much more uh, complicated. But it has one benefit over making meth the other way, and that is that you can make P2P many different ways with a lot of chemical hacks involving different combinations of chemicals. Most of these chemicals are industrial, widely available, very cheap. And so no government can really crack down on the manufacture of P2P because there's so many different ways of of making it. And the P2P method was used by the bikers back in the 1960s when they were making methamphetamine back in, you know, the Hells Angels and groups like that. The Mexican uh, trafficking world figured it out or began to use it Uh, In the mid-2000s, after the Mexican government cracked down on ephedrine, and since then it's become kind of the way that they've been making meth um, uh, pretty much across the board. What this means is that they can make, because they can make unlimited quantities of, of P2P, they can also make almost unlimited quantities of methamphetamine, and that's exactly what we've been seeing over the last 10 years. The methamphetamine is just spreading 
really, it's now nationwide. It's gotten rid of all those little meth cooks that used to be so much of folklore in the Midwest and the Southwest and all these different places. Those guys have got completely outcompeted. They're gone. And now it's just pretty much Mexican meth, very, very cheap, extraordinarily cheap, covering the country and extraordinarily potent as well. And that brings us to another part of the story, which is that it, it creates this um, very rapid onset symptoms of mental illness, schizophrenia and so on. Okay. So with the change in ingredients, how does it affect the change in the way the drug interacts with the user, which is almost always to say the addict? I think people are still trying to figure out what's actually happening. Initially, when I wrote The Least of Us, um, one, one idea was that, that this stuff had uh, uh, toxic chemicals in it that maybe was uh, affecting users. Um, and the, the other was that simply they're able to make it so pure and so potent that and 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 on the street it's so prevalent now that no dealer dares cut the stuff anymore because he'd lose customers so now what you're seeing is just a remarkably potent unprecedentedly potent methamphetamine that the human brain cannot really handle never been made this way but is the high the same well the the high is very different it's so potent that it, it seems to be to be affecting uh the brain in very very sinister ways very damaging damaging ways and very quickly uh, people uh, uh, lapse into psychosis. Very, it, very difficult to get out of it too. To, just because you stop using this doesn't mean that you kind of return to normalcy. Frequently, you find we, we're we're finding, and so this is the kind of the story that's also accompanied these vast supplies of of methamphetamine that have been coming out of Mexico really since about two thousand, let's say eleven, twelve, thirteen, right in there. So let's talk about fentanyl. This is a drug that's a surgical miracle. You even disclosed that it was used in a surgery that you had. How did it become a street drug, a pernicious street drug at that? I think a lot of this began first with the Mexican trafficking world discovering fentanyl through an an underworld uh, chemist that they hired. Um, And then he got busted. They never forgot it. That was their first exposure to, to, to fentanyl. Uh, as a drug that could could uh, outcompete heroin, and uh, he began to make it for them in two thousand and six, five and six. He got arrested. A lot of that fentanyl went to the United States, killed many many people during that time period. He got arrested. They lost their fentanyl source for a bit. The the Chinese moved in, and the Chinese chemical companies began selling fentanyl on the web. Uh, to a lot of dealers worldwide and to a lot of folks in the United States, primarily in the Midwest, uh, began to realize this was a huge, prof- hugely profitable drug they could get via the mail from uh, from Chinese companies. But the the real shift towards a fentanyl as a nas- nationwide drug in the United States came when the Mexicans began to make it themselves using precursor chemicals, uh, ingredient chemicals from that they bought from China and some other and some other countries, mainly from China, though. And so you get these chemicals coming in in just catastrophic amounts, and and the the chemical and the, the trafficking world in Mexico certainly over the last five years has really mastered um, how to make it. And and there's more and more people now in those areas that are making it. And and the supplies, therefore, again, like methamphetamine, the supplies have just ballooned. And now you're seeing fentanyl, not just in the Midwest but from Maine to Los Angeles and every place in between. 
And the Mexican gangs, I mean, that is your area of expertise. You were living and writing about Mexico for a decade, but that is the similarity between the story told in The Least of Us and the last book. I mean, obviously, both are about different drug epidemics, but one was prompted by the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. The other, as you've just detailed, Mexican crime lords trying to get around restrictions and the Chinese uh, innovation and globalization. But in both cases, Mexican gangs, I know you say that cartel is not exactly the right word. Mexican gangs were vital in injecting all of these drugs into the American bloodstream. Correct. And I would say that... that that this began to happen after our pharmaceutical industry began to push prescription opioid painkillers as the new kind of miracle cure for all American pain in the mid-90s and into the next decade. And with that, the Mexican trafficking world woke up to the fact that we were busy creating a brand new market of opioid-addicted consumers through these pills, through these prescription pills, um, uh, in the in the United States, I lived in Mexico from '94 to 2004, and I remember many traffickers down there did not want to deal with heroin. You know, it was it was a drug that never meant much. It was like a static market up in the United States. The people who used it didn't have much money, and and it was it was viewed as any if anything as more scuzzy a drug than we view heroin in the United States. But as that move towards opioids began in the United States and more and more people began to use them and heroin being a chemical cousin to the painkillers, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and other uh, pharmaceutical opioids, we be- you began to see a- an awakening uh, in the Mexican trafficking world like, damn, there's a new market up there. And what's more, it involves people who have money. They're not tapped out. Addicts have been strung out on heroin for 30 years. They are people who are just recently been been addicted. And as that a realization grew, without a doubt, the Mexican trafficking world began to pile in. The first guys to, to really understand that, though, were the guys that I wrote about in my Dreamland book uh, from the small town in the small state of Nayarit. They were perfectly positioned, having a system of selling heroin black tar heroin, like pizza. And they, they, they were moving, they were very expansionary. They're moving to new markets and they discover this uh, along the way. They moved to Columbus, Ohio, and they realized, oh my God, this is a bigger market than we ever imagined. And it's because of the pills. So if they follow the pills, then they go, then they can get a, a market for heroin that they never imagined. Since then, of course, the market has just exploded. Those guys I wrote about in Dreamland are really footnotes now. Everybody's involved in in, uh, in in this and and it's just such a much larger market um, made but but it starts with with what began in the mid 90s with those prescription pain pills those guys that you wrote about in dreamland they were entrepreneurial and taking uh, the moral aspect away they there was there's something to be said about how hardworking they were how much they recognized the opportunity how they executed their vision is the same thing true here because I get the impression that you paint more of a picture that this stuff is just so easy to distribute and get people addicted you don't really need to be that clever to do it no, I think that that's kind of what's going on right now is that, that a few things have coalesced. One is that corruption in Mexico has and, and really unwillingness un- un- of the government down there to really address this in any, any meaningful way at all means that, we, that Mexico now has just, I would say, catastrophic quantities of, of chemicals coming in and that Mexican tra- the Mexican trafficking world has really transitioned away 
from plant-based drugs and towards chemical-based drugs, synthetic drugs, fentanyl and meth being the two main uh, uh, examples of that. And so they are now, with these chemical ingredients, are now able to make more of these drugs than we could ever conceive of. It's just remarkable that the prices, we have a long history, you know, of meth prices in the United States. And the pound, a wholesale pound of meth in the Fresno area, just talking with a Fresno uh, source I have, um, has dropped from $20,000 in 2008 to f- to $800. That's how much the price has dropped. In Nashville, where I currently uh, live, the price for a wholesale pound of meth six, seven years ago would have been something on the order of 16000 Now it's down to $2,000. It just gives you an idea of the enormity of the supply. And how many people or how many doses would a pound of meth represent? How many people can get high how many times off of a pound of meth? On the street, um, a common it's common to buy a gram. And you're talking about a, a huge, huge amount in every pound. What's more, this is also important, though, that this, this meth, as I said earlier, is coming over here virtually unadulterated. Uh, from the tests that they've been able to do. And so this is meth that is not like meth of, of years gone by that was cut, that was diluted in some way or, 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 or fashion. I, I, and I think that also has is a function of the supply. Dealers do not want to cut their dope that they're getting uh, because, first of all, it's dirt cheap already. You don't need to, you can buy tons of it and lots of it, and you and, and you can for very, very little money. And if you start diluting it, the customers will the world will get out, and you'll lose you lose customers. So it's 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 a it's all a function again of this enormous enormous supply that's coming out of, out of Mexico, and that is changing a lot. And these drugs also, I it bears mentioning too. That these are these drugs do not obey any seasons. You can make these drugs all year round if you have the chemicals, which they do now in Mexico. Why don't European countries have these kind of problems that we do? I mean, I know Scotland actually has uh, addiction rates like us, but if you look at Germany's unintentional poisoning death per hundred thousand, it's a fraction of ours. So what is it? The safety net? The channels? What are we doing wrong? We are a country that, first of all, we have a deep reservoir of trauma in this country. And we have seen that exposed by the opioid epidemic. If you get down deep into it, a lot of people who got addicted that have horrible, horrible trauma that was unspoken. Rape, incest, beating, neglect, child abuse, it's poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Neglect being a huge one, apparently. And... Um, and then on top of that, on top of that reservoir of trauma all across this country, we also have allowed for all kinds of legal addictive stuff, you know, sugar, uh, unbelievable ability to market some of this stuff. Gambling apps are the new one, right? You've seen them on every sports event, all that kind of stuff. You see uh, social media, of course, video games, pornography, all of that. And then on top of that, all of that making the kind of the bedrock of the, of of the culture we also unleashed then these these prescription opioid painkillers nationwide in in quantities that just kept on escalating and it seems to me frankly that a lot of what of what what grows what 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 has grown out of that has really its roots in 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 that combination of stuff of course you're also talking about a culture in which we have done so much to shred community 
in which we have done so much to kind of isolate ourselves because we can. We're so prosperous. We don't need almost any of anybody else. We can be all alone and it's messy to be around other people, to deal with other people. I mean, I think some of this is part of what we're seeing, just the, the shredding of the family. We're seeing shredding of, of, of community-based uh, uh, organizations and institutions that really kept communities together and provided a kind of a bulwark against this, this problem. Um, that's, that's my, my kind of uh, uh, you know, layman's uh, reporter's best guess of why this country has so much of this problem and other countries have it, but not to this degree. And tomorrow we will continue our conversation with Sam Quinones about the dopamine hits that drugs deliver, states incoherent rules on marijuana, and how his research sheds new light on the connection between homelessness and addiction to these specific drugs. That's tomorrow on The Gist. In 2016, Airbnb had a problem. Well, they probably had a problem long before that, but it was just getting widespread attention in 2016. Black would-be renters were feeling they were getting unfairly rejected from would-be rentals on the site. ABC interviewed Cortina Crittenden, a 23-year-old African-American who was constantly getting rejected on Airbnb. So Cortina took action. I changed my name to Tina, and then I put up a photo of a cityscape in Chicago. Once that happened, I never had any issues booking any place on Airbnb. Of course, that complaint went viral. Cortina took her frustration to Twitter, igniting a social movement under the hashtag Airbnb While Black, and says she soon realized hundreds of people had similar stories. But it wasn't just a hashtag and a collection of lived experience. There was research to back it up. The year before, Harvard researchers conducted a very well-designed experiment to test if there was racial discrimination among Airbnb hosts. They sent booking requests to thousands of potential hosts. All contained the same language in the message. All were for stays eight weeks in the future. All were for properties which displayed availability. The only difference was that some of the requests came from users with white-sounding first names and some with African-American sounding names. And in case you're wondering, oh, did the researchers just wing it on the names? No, there are actually verified databases of names that scan to Americans as more likely to be a white person's name or a black person's name. Like I said, it was thorough, it was expansive, it was well-designed. The results were unambiguous. They got lots of attention on news and in pop culture as Adam Conover's show, Adam Ruins Everything, demonstrates. The problem is this enables discrimination. One study found that guests with black sounding names were 16% less likely to be approved as Airbnb guests. The exact finding was, I will quote from the report, we find widespread discrimination against guests with distinctively African-American names. African-American guests received a positive response roughly 42% of the time compared to roughly 50% for white guests. And if you're wondering why Adam, like all the coverage, cited findings of a 16% disparity. Well, that's how the math works. 50 to 42 is eight percentage points, but that eight percentage points is 16% of the number we started off with, 50. The hashtag about blacks being discriminated against by Airbnb, that study 
all the coverage put pressure on Airbnb. The Congressional Black Caucus wrote to the CEO of Airbnb, citing Title II of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The letter read, in part, members of the CBC are deeply concerned about recent reports of exclusion of African Americans on the Airbnb platform. We sincerely hope the leadership of Airbnb will take the issue of discrimination seriously. They did. And not just PR action. Airbnb took real action. They had every reason to take the complaint seriously, not just because of pressure, but because of what their perception would be among potential users. They didn't want to be known as the site where discrimination abounded, where black users would say, oh, Airbnb, that's where we have a hard time getting a booking versus Expedia, Hotel.com, or just going to the Holiday Inn Express website. So Airbnb hired lawyer Laura Murphy, the first African-American to lead the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office to conduct an audit. Airbnb partnered with Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. They funded something called the Lighthouse Project, meant to, quote, uncover and address disparities in how people of color experience Airbnb and how we are, meaning Airbnb, are using these findings to guide our work to fight discrimination and make Airbnb more open and inclusive. They changed the policy on when hosts get to see guests' photos. They made all users sign a community commitment pledge. They kicked off some hosts from the platform. The CBC cheered them along as if they were doing the right thing. And now the first batch of results are made public. And here are some headlines about how these efforts went. New York Times. Black travelers say home share hosts discriminate and a new Airbnb report agrees. Bloomberg, Airbnb anti-discrimination study finds bias persists in booking. CNN, Airbnb finds people have more trouble booking stays if hosts think they're black. So it was a failure, right? And also consider that the Times story included an anecdote about a black family who claimed racial discrimination factoring into a host's canceling their stay. There was also a second anecdote about racial discrimination during a booking on Airbnb rival site Verbo, VRBO. And none of those headlines are inaccurate. But I'm going to give you the underlying numbers. Remember the 2015 study that found the 50% acceptance rate dropped to 42%? for users with African-American sounding names. Airbnb has reformed its policies, so the acceptance rate has gone up across the board. Now, here are the rates. For black Airbnb users, 91.4% of the time, they get their booking. And for whites, it's 94.1% of the time. So yes, that is a disparity. If that's what you want to focus on, that 2.7% difference, you've found your disparity, apparently, that is what the media wants to focus on. But it's also a giant decrease in discrimination in relative terms and in absolute terms. Also, we should note 100% acceptance rate is not actually ideal. There are understandable reasons why some hosts should have some judgment in who stays in their home. Of course, if that's decided on racial lines, that's certainly wrong. But we should note that the difference in experiences of black and white users is once more 2.7 percentage points. Or if you want to use the same methodology where the Harvard researchers called an 8 percentage point difference a 16% disparity, now we can say 2.7 percentage points starting from a base of 94.1. It's a 2.86 percentage rate difference. Another way, and if you wanted to put this in the headline, you could say... Airbnb's efforts to combat bias 
result in an 82% decrease in discrimination. That's all true. It's all accurate. I would say it's a more accurate way in informing your readers and listeners, viewers, about ongoing discrimination. As far as the part about Airbnb admitting discrimination, they don't deny it. Their tone is more of a, but we've not reached our goal yet. Still, progress is the main theme. Here is Laura Murphy's intro to that report. Airbnb's work detailed in this report is a testament both to the intractability of discrimination and to the company's enduring commitment to fight bias and foster inclusion across its community of hosts and guests. This tenacity is a rare trait in a company. Disparity of 2.7% between white and black, still a disparity. There is an interpretation that says any disparity can't be said to be quote-unquote progress. I guess everyone who covered these findings except me buys into that interpretation. But personally, I think this is overly pessimistic and dispiriting. And I'll tell you what else such an interpretation does. It discredits other more blatant forms of discrimination. The New York Times coverage of that Airbnb study, the black travelers say home share hosts discriminate and a new Airbnb report agrees, that headline, ran right next to another story in their print edition. New suit uses data to back racial bias claims against State Farm. Subhead, black customers have long claimed that the nation's largest home insurer discriminates against them. A lawsuit claims a nine-month study provides some proof. But that story, hedged as a study providing some proof, actually provides a good deal of proof. The Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at NYU found that black policyholders needed more interactions to get their claims processed, black policyholders had to fill out more paperwork than white homeowners, and a Dutch software company used an algorithm that flagged black homeowners as more likely to be engaged in fraud based on the background rates of fraud in the neighborhoods where customers lived. The disparities weren't vast, they were usually in the low double digits, but they were real, they were all many times the 2.7% disparity in the Airbnb study. I think it's possible. If you read the Airbnb study first, and you did so with scrutiny, you might say 2.7%, really? All this over 2.7%? And then if you saw the insurance story right next to it, you might say, must I read another story about a thin accusation? And you'd skip it even when that story raises much more glaring red flags than the Airbnb story. I'm sure the Times would like for you to read both stories the same way, which is that black customers face discrimination left and right. I'm sure both businesses would like you to ignore both stories. But there seems to be a big difference in Airbnb's action and State Farm's alleged actions. I think these differences should be prominently noted. Maybe even they should drive the coverage. What I see is a story of a good deal of progress in the area of discrimination and a story of lots of challenges abounding in the area of discrimination. Apparently, our media gatekeepers don't trust us to be sufficiently discriminating news consumers when it comes to this information. And that's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Just listeners will note a change in title and well-deserved. Michelle Pasca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.